0: Praise the Lord. Am I coming through? Can you hear me? I'm looking to the guys on the, in the booth because obviously you folks online, I don't know what you're saying. I'm good. Okay. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Well, or if it's afternoon or evening, where you are or when you are, as Pastor you just said, then, The appropriate greeting to you. It's wonderful to think that not only are we not separated by distance, but not separated by time through the benefit of the Holy Spirit and through the benefit of this technology. Even as Pastor Henji was just speaking uh, right now about the possibility that there could be uh, people around the globe who will be able to Uh, participate in today's service and benefit from today's teaching Uh, i was freshly excited by that prospect because it means that we have something that for much of the history of the church of jesus christ on this earth was not practically possible, although it's always been possible in the spirit because with God, nothing is impossible. But we live in a day and age where truly people can be on the other side of the globe in another part of the day or even at another day entirely. And through the means of Internet streaming or recording, uh, we are together. So let's praise the Lord for that. We are together. You know, we keep hearing statements like this. We'll get through this together. United we stand. And how true that is, especially in the body of Christ. It it should be our motto and uh, our message. And it is certainly uh, a message of hope in my heart today that I pray extends to you. And I trust through the Lord that it does. As always, I want to say thank you also to the worship team uh, for their uh, excellent heartfelt leadership and uh, heart rending devotion to the lord and thank you because you're part of the worship team turn to the person next to you if there happens to be one or you could just say it to the spirit of the lord that is there with you and say i'm part of the worship team it's true If, if you're worshiping you're part of the worship team and if you're not worshiping what are you waiting for you're part of the worship team You know, we, as the body of Christ, are called to worship the Lord, and it's not an obligation. It's fair to say it's a duty in the sense that it is part of our mandate, but it is our privilege. It is our joy, and in fact, it is our purpose. You know, I'm teaching a class right now in Praise School of Ministry online via Zoom. In fact, you can still participate today. Uh, This is the last day that you'll be able to join this class before we conclude at the uh, end of next month. So if you would still like to be a part of PSOM, you can do that. You can send an email to info at mypcf.org. That's I-N-F-O at mypcf.org. And if you send it to me before noon uh, Pacific time today, I will get the information to you to participate in this class. But it's on the fundamentals of faith. It's the first of a series that we're going to be doing. So even if it wasn't possible for you to participate Uh, In this session, there's going to be additional fundamental of faith classes that are going to be offered. And in that class, we have been talking about the purpose of life. What do we as human beings recognize through the scripture and by the spirit of the Lord to be our fundamental purpose? And in fact, worshiping the Lord is a very apt Biblical description of our fundamental purpose, the chief aim of humanity is to know the Lord and to enjoy His presence and to serve His will. That's our purpose. That's our purpose not only as Christians, but that's our purpose here in this local body of faith, Praise Christian Fellowship of Los Angeles. So to members of the family, of PCFLA, thank you for being part of our purpose, which is not only to know the Lord and serve Him, but through Him, to know and love and serve one another according to his purposes. We thank you for your ongoing giving, which is what makes this ministry possible. It does, in fact, of course, cost money for us to maintain this property, even while we're not primarily using it, and of course, we are using it for any number of things, including streaming this service. So while we remain essentially uh, closed to uh, most public operations during this period, uh, and we are looking hopefully towards a time when we'll be able to move back to public gatherings in our normal order. Nevertheless, we still need to keep these lights on, keep this internet access going, keep uh, this staff focused on the work of the Lord that they do for Him and for us. And so your giving makes that possible. May the Lord bless you as you continue to support through your tithes and offerings, gifts that the Lord may put onto your heart. For PCF and other aspects of his ministry at work in this world, the Lord will reward you for your faithfulness to give, and that also is a part of our worship. You can, of course, give online uh, by visiting mypcf.org and and going to the Give page, uh, or you can see the uh, URL address right there that will take you directly to it, mypcf.org. Donate. And you can also, of course, send in checks to our physical address, which is on the website, which is on our our, uh, bulletin as well, which is also on the website, and it can be downloaded as a PDF, and that address is 2235 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90057. Lord, our offerings that we make to you, we know that it goes to you. You have no need of anything from us. But we desire to show our trust in you, and we desire to sow our seed into your kingdom. And so we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to give, and we thank you for providing for us as we do so in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. So there's some uh, announcements for you. Um, Thank you for your giving. Remember our ongoing service practices. We do have every Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. our Zoom prayer meeting, and that will be uh, taking place uh, once again uh, this coming Wednesday. The uh, login information is on our website on the events page, or you can uh, get uh, links to that on our Facebook page. Our uh, sermons, uh, the archive of those messages are available for you to listen to anytime on our website or on our YouTube channel. And uh, we are continuing with our preschool school and ministry classes and many bible studies and so forth for my class we'll be meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. today once again on zoom pacific time and even though it may feel like such a strange and uh, difficult time i invite you to be encouraged in the joy of the lord that there is meaningful ways in which you and i are receiving from the lord believing in the lord and moving forward in the harvest to which he has called us and if you If you are willing to say your yes and amen to that, just turn to the person next to you and say, I believe it's a year of harvest. I do believe it's a year of harvest. I see and believe it. It happened in the middle of the night, in one of those hours that can be described either as very, very late, or very, very early. Because midnight was already hours past, and yet the rising of the sun was still hours off. And in the dark streets, our car wound its way through the little village that I grew up in, on our way home. And yet even in the darkness of that night and the darkness of those streets, I could see from my seat in the back of the car, through my window, something on that street that I don't think I had ever seen before at that hour of night, although it was not my practice to be there quite that late. But it wasn't the first time I had driven through town that late or that early. But it was the first time that I had ever seen her. From about a block away, around the corner, a young woman appeared in the dark of night. I saw her blonde hair. I saw her face. The blood seemed to have drained from it. She was white like a sheet or a ghost. And she was making a beeline directly towards us, towards our car towards my door, towards me. I'd never seen her before in my life. But as she rounded that corner and ran down the street and threw open the door of our car as it came to a stop next to the stop sign, I instinctively moved over to let her in. She came with such purpose, with such absolute energy and anxiety that I didn't know what else to do. And then she began to tell us her story. But before I can tell you her story, I have to give a little context to mine. It happened when I was a freshman in high school, and I was on the speech team. Maybe you're not surprised that that was of interest to me. And so every weekend almost, we had a speech tournament. It just so happened that the town that I grew up in was on the very northern end of this uh, district that we competed in, which meant that every time we would go away for a speech tournament, which usually happened Friday evenings and Saturdays, We would have to drive on a bus for hours at a time. Those tournaments went all day Saturday and often late into the evening with the award ceremonies, which meant that we didn't arrive back home to our school until after midnight, sometimes one or two in the morning. And this, of course, was in the days before any common use of cell phones. So we would line up in the cold often at the payphone to call our parents, those of us who didn't yet drive, and say, I'm here, can you come pick me up? And God bless my parents who were willing to get up in the middle of the night and do that. And so that's how I found myself on that evening in the back of our car, driving through the little town that was on the way to our home, which was out in the countryside. Now, at that time, the town was still quite small. It's grown greatly in the years since. But it was very unusual to see just about anyone on the streets that late at night there were hardly any streetlights as I recall there was though in that town like in most for better or worse a bar and that bar of course kept bars hours I don't think I had ever thought about it as a kid especially and to this day I've never gone into it Uh, even when I visit that town you may be glad to know but in any case That establishment had probably just closed, or not long before we were driving through town, but long enough that there was nobody left around from it, except this one young woman who seemed to be running from something and running directly at us. It became apparent as she began to speak on the verge of tears, her voice shaking, her entire body shaking, that she had had an encounter that had scared her to her core. The first thing she said as she got into the car, all of us absolutely shocked. My mother and father in the front seat, my father driving, my mother saying, what's going on? This young woman said, please drive, just go, go. There's a man and he's after me. So of course, you hear that and you go. My father began to drive through the village. We were all peeling our eyes to see this man whom we never did see. To this day, I don't know the full story, only what she shared. And I don't know how much of it was accurate or true. It was a bit of a strange story, as you might imagine. She said that she was young, and I can't remember today how old it was, but I remember at the time thinking, she's only a few years older than I am. She was obviously old enough to be in that bar, so she must have been 21, and I think probably not much older than that at most. And what she said was that she was a married woman from out of town, who had come not with her husband, who had stayed at the hotel that they were staying in, but with another friend of hers that was traveling with them, a girlfriend of hers, and that they had wanted to go out and enjoy the nightlife of the town. And so they had gone to this bar together. Now, already I knew that this woman, who had found the only car on the street in any distance that she could possibly find, had come to us because she had no other option. We were her only refuge. We were her only hope at that point. But I also thought, oh boy. She's gone from out of the frying pan and into the fire because my mother is not going to like this story and my mother will not hold her tongue. I know my mother will speak very boldly and plainly, lovingly to be sure, but she'll let this young lady know, what were you doing out at a bar without your husband late at night, which is of course precisely what my mother began to say. But the young lady, she was so sorrowful about it. She said, I know, I know, it was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. And we said, Where, what happened to your friend? Well, my friend, who was single, she said, met a guy. And so they left together. And my mother well, immediately said, your friend left you alone at that bar with these strange men? Oh, she wasn't happy about this. I think if my mother could have gone and found the friend she would have given her a talking to, as well as if we could find this strange man. But in any case, the young woman had ended up alone at the bar and talking to some gentleman that she met there. And apparently their conversation concluded outside of the bar when his intentions became obviously quite different than her own. And whatever transpired, she feared. In fact, I think it's fair to say she feared for her life. And I didn't blame her because though we never saw hide nor hair of that man, I saw how scared she was. In fact, at that young age, I don't think at that time I had ever really seen someone literally scared to death with the fear of death on them. But I definitely saw it with her. And to this day, it still remains a memory that I can't shake. So we were driving through the country out of the town. We found out where she was staying. It was some miles away from our home. My parents said, we're going to drop Courtney off at home, and then we're going to take you to your hotel and make sure that you and your husband get reconnected and make sure that you get back safely. And as we were driving, she began to calm and then she began to weep. And it was clear that she felt remorse for some of the choices that she had made that night. She felt embarrassed for the position that she had ended up in. She felt scared of what she had faced and she felt relieved that she had found some kind people, I think it's fair to say, who would take her home. In those minutes that we had in the car together, my parents began to talk to her about the Lord. Because whenever you are dealing with situations of life at that kind of extremity, it's an opportune moment to remember that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. But unless you and I are living in the reality of that truth, when we find ourselves suddenly in that moment, when we find ourselves suddenly stranded or realizing that we've made a mistake in in where we are or what we've done, in realizing that someone is coming at us with an intention that is evil or wrong or against our well-being, when we find ourselves simply going down the road and suddenly something comes from around the corner and it's racing directly towards us. If we don't already know the Lord, if we aren't cured in a lifestyle that says, I want to live for him, that's rooted in his word and connected to his people and hallelujah, filled with his spirit, then you and I are likely to be very confused, very confounded, and very afraid. Hallelujah, that we can turn to the Lord before times of trouble. And live for the Lord at all times. But I share this story with you today because, in a sense, I feel like the times that we are living in are relatable to this story, at least in as much as how I experienced it. Just sitting in the back seat, I wasn't even driving the car, I wasn't in control, and suddenly something, someone came from around the corner and came straight for me. Isn't that a bit the way COVID has landed? in the laps of all of us. Now, some might say we had good warning and should have known that there was the possibility, in fact, the probability of a pandemic coming. it is, in fact, true. Just as it's true that you and I can be certain living here in California, for those that do, or other places that have a similar geology as ours, and frankly, these days, just about anywhere is susceptible to this, that there's a huge earthquake coming sometime. Now, you might be thinking, why does he have to rub my nose in this? I'm just saying, you know something's coming when it's coming around the corner. You never know when it's going to dawn, when it's going to break over you or on you. I read this week about the arc floods that California is susceptible to. You know, every 100 to 200 years, California experiences a torrential flood of such catastrophic level that it basically puts the entire central valley under 15 or 20 feet of water. And it often happens within cycles of extreme drought and then extreme rain and flooding. We've recently had the extreme drought. It is not unlikely to expect that sometime there will be, relatively soon, extreme flooding here in California, which has an impact, by the way, not just on California, but the nation. And in as much as it impacts the nation, it can, in fact, impact the world. You may be surprised to know that, despite all of our notions of Midwestern America as the agricultural breadbasket of America, and in fact, there's no doubt that the Plains States and the the, uh, agricultural uh, offerings of middle America account for enormous uh, production of the American food system, you might be surprised to know that the bulk of America's food supply, especially in terms of produce, but also in terms of dairy and a significant portion of meat, virtually all of major nut products, come from California. So when California experiences tremendous flooding that particularly affects the heartland, if you will, of California, it affects, affects the entire nation. We are living in a time in which social strife and social dissolution of standards and norms, a sense of insecurity, a recognition of injustice and uncertainty about the future is setting our cities on fire and rocking our worlds and gripping our hearts. We're living in the midst, not only of a pandemic and social crisis, but also economic strain, which could, in fact, unfold to be even greater and heavier in times to come, and, of course, also in the midst of yet another contentious campaign season, one that, in fact, has the possibility to go even beyond the election, in as there is already a sense in the land that the election results are going to be difficult for the nation to receive, no matter how it goes. We're living in tough times. And I don't want to come and preach to you that times are going to get easier because I think there's harder things around the corner. Now, you might wonder why I would speak in this way. And I'm hoping you haven't tuned out already. Because I want to speak to you about the Lord, who is our refuge and strength in the midst of times like these. Because Jesus does what and who is around the corner. And Jesus also knows how to help you and I to live through it, not just to survive, but to thrive, not just to sustain, but to proclaim the word of the Lord, the good news of the gospel, to be those who can be a refuge to those who do not know where to turn. Let them turn to you Not because you have the answers, but because you are turned to the Lord. I'm looking at the slide on the screen, and um, I don't know if I put the wrong information there for you, or you have the wrong show up, but we should be looking at the places of refuge in chapter 20. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. We are in the midst of our series on the second half of the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 20 we hear description about the cities of refuge if you're even passingly familiar with the old testament you're probably familiar with this phrase the cities of refuge but you may not have a really good understanding of why these cities were instituted and what their purpose was we're going to talk about that today in the time that we have remaining for us but i want to contextualize that message in the in the framing of the moment that we are presently in the situation that you and I face today. And it's not just those things that we have described in in coming up to this moment in the message. It also has to do with whatever you personally are dealing with, whatever you personally are facing in this time in your life that has challenge for you, has um, a call of the Lord for you, has a place to conquer, has a promise to to enter into, these are the aspects of the people of Joshua, the Joshua generation, as we've called them, that I recognize are the aspects of our life as well today. You, like the people of Joshua, have a Lord that loves you and who has come to you and I with a command in these days. And the command is rooted in him. It's rooted in who he is, what he does, and how he calls us. The command says, don't be afraid. Not because there's nothing to be afraid of. Not because you can overcome it in your own strength. Not because you have all the answers. Don't be afraid, says the Lord, because I am with you. If you're with me, right? In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm with you. But he's calling you to come with him. And where he is leading is into a promised land. For the Joshua generation, those descendants of the people that were led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness and ultimately this next generation would be the one that would enter into the promised land. It meant the nation of Israel itself, a land that was currently occupied by all kinds of hostile uh, communities and civilizations who were adamantly opposed to everything of the Lord and given over to the most extraordinary kind of decadence and evil and who had every intention of wiping out any... Nation of Israel that was going to try and come into their land. So Israel had reason to be afraid because that was the land that God had called them to, but it was also the land that God had promised them. And so what he said was, My promise can be relied upon. No matter what you see, no matter what you face, I will cover you. If you'll obey what I say, that's living under my covering. If you will do as I do and live in my spirit, then that is living in my covering. And that enables you to conquer. Because the covering of the Lord in his character is like armor. As we studied earlier this year in the epistle to the Ephesians and Paul's description of the armor of the Lord, it allows us to move forward victoriously in the nature of Jesus Christ, who is the living God. And we have overcome the opposition that we face by faith in him. Now, in the week's leading up to today's message. And if you haven't been with us during all of those, that's fine. I just want to give you, again, a kind of context of where we're at right now. We've been looking at what dominates the second portion, the last half of the book of Joshua, basically chapters 13 through 24. And in that, we see the people of Israel who at this time are... Uh, aggregated in their tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, that have given birth to, that have given life to tribes. In other words, out of the family of those 12 men came tribes of people. And each tribe has been promised an allotment in Israel. And in this section of Joshua, we are seeing how the tribes received their share. So we looked at how uh, the tribe of Judah, which means praise, And which is referred to prophetically even when Israel makes his blessing on his son Judah on on Israel's deathbed and refers to the tribe of Judah, the family of Judah as a lion from which we get the phrase the lion of the tribe of Judah. They receive a lion's share of what is offered. Now in today's teaching we're going to be looking at the nation of Israel at that time, the tribal allotments, and we're going to be discussing geography and directions. And you may think, why am I interested in all this? Well, for one thing, it's extremely helpful in understanding the material that we are reading through. And the historical relevance of this material, as I'll come back to in a moment, has very useful lessons to teach us about how God speaks to and deals with His people and how people respond And this is one of the things I'm so grateful for in the word of the Lord. The word, the scriptures reveal that often people are faithless, reckless, foolish. I don't mean to speak poorly about that young woman. I don't even remember her name and I have no idea where she is now. But I pray to God that that night was a a turning of a corner for her beyond just coming around that corner on the street. I pray that it was a life lesson for her. It ended up being one for me. She seemed like a very sweet young lady and I felt very badly for the situation she was in. And I took something of the lesson that she learned about making better choices about where to go and who to be with and I applied it in my own life. I pray that that she did the same and I, I pray that she who acknowledged the Lord in the conversation that she had with my parents. She said, yes, I I do know about God and I do know Jesus. And you could tell in what she was saying that (laughs) I think as my mother said to her, do you think Jesus really wanted you to be in that bar talking to that man tonight rather than being in in the hotel with your husband? No, ma'am, I don't think that he did. Well, I pray that that was a lesson that stayed with her the way it did with me. I don't know where she's at now, but what I do know is that... We all have times in our lives where we recognize we've made mistakes. We've made the wrong choices. And the Bible shows that even the people of God who received his promises and often walked in his victories also often fell in their own sins. And the reason why I'm glad of that is not because I enjoy watching other people fall, but because I fall so often. Because I've made so many mistakes. Because I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I need redeeming, and I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that he has enough patience and compassion to deal with me in a gracious way, even when I fail. Which, by the way, can help me, should help me, should call me to deal graciously with others when they fail against me. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray this way. Forgive us our trespasses, You know the rest, right? As we forgive those who trespass against us. And his word shows us how people fail, but God remains faithful. So in the uh, passage of scripture that we're in, we have some historical lessons to derive out of it. But the other reason I'm going to be sharing about the land and the directions is because it will help us, I think, to orient those past lessons into some present principles that help guide us, like like a map of our own world and our own lives in it today. There's also a prophetic purpose that reaches into the future. The past practices, present principles, and prophetic promises for the future. Will you say those three things? Past practices, present principles, prophetic promises for the future. The Word is full of them, and Joshua 20 is as well. Now, looking at what we see here, This lower region that is the tribe of Judah, that will become the nation of Judah at one point when Israel ultimately and unfortunately splits. But we see that there are tribes all over the land. Last uh, week, I believe it was, or two weeks ago, we looked at the tribes of Joseph. That is, the two sons of Joseph that became half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, also received large portions. And in fact, here in central Israel... Ephraim becomes a a very significant region. In fact, in part because there is there in the central area a place called Shiloh that we looked at last week where the tent of meeting, the tabernacle was. And the entire nation gathers at uh, Shiloh uh, in Joshua chapter 18 for the distribution of the rest of the lands. Now, if you would like these uh, slides... Um, I just want to remind you, the teaching slides each week are available on uh, our website, mypcf.org. If you go to the events page and scroll down, you'll see the entire teaching series thus far for the Joshua Generation uh, new beginning that we are in. And each week, uh, the new slides are added. So later today, these slides will be added as well. And you can have these maps because I realize that some of this uh, is very fine print. And you can look at it at your leisure and in more detail. So now we come to Joshua chapter 20. At this point, the tribes have been uh, given their allotments. They are still in the, the activity of occupying that land. And in fact, to some degree, they never fully complete that occupation to the degree to which it was promised to them. That's a little bit of what I was talking about, that, that failure to fully achieve everything that God calls us to. If you feel that way in your own life, I think it's wise to recognize, first of all, that all of us can relate to that. We all have fallen short of the things that God has called us to do and to be. And yet, in Christ, there is a perfecting going on. There is a a sanctifying of our lives. It's an ongoing process And yet it's a process that's already been completed in Christ. So that you and I need not feel anxious about it, but we should feel eager to keep pressing on, pressing forward for the high call of God, as the Apostle Paul talked about it. So now, in uh, Joshua 20, the allotments have been described, and now specific cities are going to be described. We are going to come to a teaching um, in uh, the coming weeks about the cities of the Levites, because the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. They do not receive their own state, if you will, their own district in the nation, because they have received an inheritance, which is to be the ministers of the priesthood in ancient Israel. That's their allotment. But they do receive, because they need cities to live in, especially in the days before the establishment of the temple, which will not be until the time of king solomon they need cities to live in and so they are given levitical cities among those levitical cities are six cities of refuge and these are described in joshua chapter 20 at the beginning of the chapter it reads you can follow along with me then the lord said to joshua tell the israelites to designate the cities of refuge as i instructed you through moses Now, he is referring to what has already been described in the books of Moses, those first five books of the Bible. In the book of Numbers, chapter 35, you can read about the cities of refuge. Even before Israel has left the wilderness, even before the Joshua generation has risen to adulthood and come to the place of crossing over the Jordan and into Israel, the Lord already knew there would be this establishment of these cities and spoke it through Moses. It's described also in Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Later on, after the era of Joshua, it will be described in the scriptures even once again in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. So continuing now in Joshua 20, what is the purpose of these cities of refuge? The Lord elucidates why they have been they are to be designated. At Anyone who kills a person accidentally, this is what we would refer to uh, in modern legal parlance, I believe, I'm no expert, as manslaughter. The involuntary death that someone else is responsible for but it's not intentional and therefore is not murder. If someone commits an act like that, they can flee to the cities of refuge and find protection from the avenger of blood. We're going to talk about who the avenger of blood is in more detail in just a moment, but suffice it to say it's the relative of the person who was killed. Some relative who says, I'm going to have my revenge against that person who killed uh, my brother, my sister, my my father, my, my son, my daughter, whatever, that would be the avenger of blood. But because the person has committed not murder, it would be wrong for them to be murdered. In other words, manslaughter is not a capital offense. It is not a capital offense uh, in the legal Mosaic law. And so this is a provision to protect someone who has made a mistake and done something wrong from receiving a punishment beyond what they are due. There is a punishment for them, which is they're going to have to relocate. They're going to have to uproot their life and move to this city of refuge. But it is a place where they will be safe. When they flee to one of these cities, the verse continues, they're to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case. So it doesn't just mean they move in and they don't answer to anybody because after all, what if somebody committed murder? And in fact, no doubt that did occur. In fact, the the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament uh, is known to speak to this issue, that there were people, of course, who committed murder and wanted to get away with murder and would present themselves as nothing other than uh, uh, someone who made a mistake. So the person had to plead their case. They had to come to court, essentially. When they came to the gate of the city, they would have to meet with the judges and the justices there. In fact, uh, the reason why these are Levitical cities is that they would have Levites living there who would be appropriately uh, positioned to be a part of that. Or there could be non-Levitical judges as well. And indeed, All of the Levitical cities, to some degree, were seen as cities of refuge. But these additional six cities, which we will see are laid out in a very strategic way, are known primarily as uh, uh, cities of refuge. And they had to have certain standards, which I won't go into great detail. But they needed to be located in certain positions. They needed to be populated with a, a certain number of people. In other words, you couldn't end up with a city that was just nothing but manslaughterers. There had to be a ratio, and there had to be management of it and governance of it. Again, much of that is described in more detail in the oral codes that got written down later. Uh, that was a part of their practice, the past practices of the cities of refuge. So the elders of that city would come to the gate when someone like this was known to have arrived, and they would... They would listen to the case. And then if it was appropriate, they would admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place for them to live in refuge, in, in sanctuary. If the avenger of blood, that is the relative who was coming to avenge the, the, the killing of their, of their relative, were to pursue them, the elders were not allowed legally to surrender the fugitive. Because just because the uh, fugitive had c- c- uh, killed someone, it was in, unintentional and without malice aforethought. In other words, it was not premeditated, it was not planned. That person is to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who's serving at that time. We're not sure why that was put into place. I suspect it was to enable enough time to pass to let tempers cool and let someone who was bent on revenge um, get over that attitude. Uh, and allow the legal system to work out uh, its um, I- I- its protocols. But we don't know precisely why it is. Some have suggested that when the high priest died and there was national mourning, it may have been a time in which it would be easier for someone who had accidentally killed someone else to come back to their hometown without being um, objectified or under um, too much scrutiny. In any case, That was the standard. It was not indefinite. There was an end to their exile, and then they could come back. And so they set apart these cities. Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Now let's look at the map and find these here. So what you'll notice is that there are natural land divisions in Israel. And there are several. One is an east-west division. You see this red line here is the Jordan River. Remember, that's the Jordan that the Lord halted and allowed them to cross into the land out of the wilderness. So it separates these two divisions, which uh, you have the west bank, as we call it, or cis-Jordan, meaning this side of the bank. And then you also have the eastern lands, which is the trans-Jordan, meaning across. So this terminology, Cisjordan, our side, and Transjordan, the other side, reflects that these are terms that come from the people of Israel primarily living in the Cisjordan or West Bank area. However, the uh, tribes did have Transjordanian uh, allotments, which you may remember, and we will look more at in, when we get to Joshua 22. So the River Jordan and its river valley is a natural east-west divider running north to south in the country like a spine. But there's also a natural kind of division of the country into three main sections. The northern region, which is the Galilee and the Golan Heights. The central region, which is the uh, the coastal plain. And then running along that spine of the uh, Jordan River, if you will, there's hill country that, that spans all three of these sections. The northern, the central and then ultimately the southern region that comes down into the wilderness and desert areas. So here you can see on the map that there's basically these three quadrants and each of the three quadrants has an eastern and a western side. This makes for six major sections and you begin to see why there would be six cities of refuge because each major section is going to have a city of refuge so that no matter where you are, no matter where you're living, there is a place you can reach within a day's journey and be safe. In other words, it is God's provision to people everywhere saying, I am near, I am here, come to me and I will cover you. Now, as I mentioned, there's also significant regional distinctions in the land and we won't go into great detail with that, today, but at a future time we may talk more about this. I mentioned the coastal plains, the desert wilderness, the river valley. What's of key interest to us to hear is that in um, the, uh, the uh, Western portion of the nation, the primary uh, cities of refuge, which are the Cisjordanian uh, cities of refuge, that is the ones that are in the nation proper and on the same side of the Jordan, those are all in hill country. Hill country was also the place where you found places like Shiloh. That is, hill country was associated with the mountain of the Lord. The Lord appeared to Moses on the mountain. The Lord gave his word on a mountain. The Lord appeared to Abraham on a mountain and saved Jacob by providing the ram in the bush on a mountain. And it was on a mountain that David would ultimately see the angel of the Lord being held back that 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 avenging angel of the Lord that was going to come at a later time and smite Israel for its sin. And there the Lord held it back. And David witnessed that and said, this is the place where the temple will be, the temple mount. So hills, uplands, highlands, reflect coming up to God. And each one of those Cisjordanian cities of refuge is up there. May I just say, let's look up in these days. Let's go up to God. Don't go down into the low attitudes and and behaviors of the worst of what humanity can do and be. But go up high into what God has called us to be. Come up to the Lord. And when you and I fail and falter, that's a time to look up and come up to God. So the Galilean hills are in the north, the hills of Ephraim or the central region. Now, they're referred to as the hills of Ephraim. That's, as I said, where you see Shiloh. But Shechem is going to be the city, and actually Shechem is in this kind of trans- transitional region between Manasseh and Ephraim. But the hills are known primarily as the hills of Ephraim, probably in part because Ephraim is such a significant tribe at that time in Israel, and also because there is some, some flexibility in terms of how these Uh, borders are understood and then in the south there are the Judean hills which by the way is where you find Bethlehem so the three cities that we have seen thus far are Kadesh which is in the north in the tribal land of Naphtali the central city is Shechem as I mentioned it's in a it's in a boundary area between Manasseh and Ephraim and then in the south there is Kiriath Arba or also known as Hebron which is in the tribal lands of Judah in the Judean Hills. Now let's look at the Transjordanian cities. That is the ones on the other side of the river. So back in uh, Joshua chapter 20, we are told east of the Jordan, they designated Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau, the tribe of Reuben. Ramoth in Gilead, often called Ramoth Gilead, which is in the region of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, in the tribe of Manasseh, which also is the Golan Heights. Again, an elevated Uh, So here you can see, in the north, Golan, in the center, region, Ramoth, Gilead, and in the south, Bezer. Here are the six main cities of refuge throughout the region. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them, so not only the people of Israel, but foreigners who have come into their midst, immigrants, can go to these places if they have accidentally killed someone. They can flee to these cities and be protected. They will not be killed by the avenger of blood before standing trial. They will have to go to trial. They will have to answer for their actions. There will be witnesses. There will be review of testimony and evidence. Now, who is this kinsman redeemer, the avenger of blood? Well, we are told about such an individual in a variety of places in the Old Testament. In Numbers 35... We are told that not only uh, are they able to redeem uh, a loved one who has been murdered or been killed by someone else, but they also can redeem a loved one, a relative's property out of debt, or a person in their family, a close relative, who may have sold themselves into indentured servitude. This, This kinsman redeemer, if they have the means, has the legal right, regardless of any contract, to redeem property that's been hawked, or people that have sold themselves into enslavement. And they also can receive restitution of wrongs on behalf of a relative who is no longer available, so that they become a mechanism by which the legal standards of Israel, which are extraordinarily high, especially in the context of the people they're living among, where there these kinds of laws are not usual, not typical, Revenge is usual and typical. The idea that there would be an arrangement that would provide protection for somebody who may have done something negligent and harmful but not intentional is extraordinary. That there would be a legal system by which witnesses are needed, and in fact, in a murder case especially, it was insufficient to have a single witness. On the mouths of two or more witnesses, every testimony had to be confirmed. Now, the kinsman redeemer or the avenger of blood is part of this, but In the Old Testament, we are also told something rather extraordinary. In fact, first of all, by God himself, who refers to himself as Israel's kinsman redeemer. In Exodus chapter 6, the Lord speaking to his people as he is preparing to deliver them out of their enslavement into a world given over to darkness and evil, which is what Egypt represented at that time. And of course, their literal enslavement there. He says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, from under the yoke of slavery, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. In Exodus 15, Israel responds to the Lord in the Song of the Sea, a song of God's victory over Egypt. After having been led through the waters, like a baptism they've been led, and they sing and say, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You will not only redeem, but you will be the sanctuary. So the the avenger of blood is a righteous notion. It has to do with justice being done, and it has to do with the bonds of familial love. But the places of refuge reflect that human beings are often inaccurate, even when they are seeking justice and even when they are loving family they may not be seeing according to the grace of God. There is a need for God's judgment to rule over human hearts and human minds. That's what the places of refuge are about. Think of it this way. As we come to our conclusion, I only have a few minutes remaining, I want to wrap up what we've discussed and make application to our lives. There were cities in the south, just like places in the past. Cities in the center, like the core of where you and I are living today, our present moment. We look back 3,300 years ago and see what the past practices of the Joshua generation were, but they have present implications for the principles that you and I would live our lives by today. And cities in the north, cities in the hills, cities looking up, cities looking forward to a future that God has promised to his people who will do as he does and act according to his practices, The cities of refuge aided the rule of law. They were a means of justice in ancient Israel. It wasn't about excusing any and all kinds of wrong behavior. Not at all. And in fact, if you and I understand the grace of God to be simply that it doesn't matter what we do, God loves us no matter what, we misunderstand what grace is about and how it is practiced. Grace does not say there was never anything wrong. Grace says there is a process by which the wrong is made right, and that process lives in the heart of God and is found in following His ways. And it also says that there are principles that you and I need to live our lives by that involve not only looking to the Lord, but also living according to the character and conduct of the kinds of principles that the Lord demonstrates to us. In our present lives, These principles call us to consider that justice must include love and mercy, righteousness and reckoning. But it must be done in an orderly fashion. There must be some means to take a step back from the kinds of primal passions that any of us would feel when someone that we love is harmed or wronged. There still needs to be a system of justice, a system of laws, a rule of law. And in that rule of law, there must be a recognition that our law is rooted in God. Because if our law is not rooted in God, then our law is no law. There is no law apart from God. Some sing the praise of anarchy in these days. Don't listen to it. Don't heed it. It is a siren song of death. It leads to destruction. And whatever person sings it, they ought to know that they are doing no more than parroting the song of Satan because the prince of darkness is the prince of anarchy. If ever there was a case of chaos and confusion, the devil is it. But God is a God of order. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. And the Lord has said, vengeance is mine. It belongs to me. There is a rule of law that can live in civilized, orderly fashion. And it must be predicated upon God and his word. In that word in that God, in that place, is a promise. Every single one of the cities of refuge reveals to us the person of Christ. Because ultimately, you and I may be any one of the people that we see in these stories. We may be the person who, through some negligence, not intentional, but in a way that we should have known better, or maybe we couldn't have known better, we did wrong. We hurt someone else. We, we lost something or broke something or killed something that we cannot bring back in our own power. We may be the subject of someone else's wrath. We may feel that we are the target of someone else's hatred. We may be the person who wants revenge. We may be the one that says, that was my loved one. That was my property. That was my wrong to right, it was done against me and I want to write it, then you too need to recognize that you're called to the city of refuge also. You bring your case to the Lord. You lift your cause to God and you say, here is what's wrong. Will you make it right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But you need to rest your case in the hands of the Lord. The past practice of the people of Israel was to rest it in the hands of the priests. But you and I have a great high priest who knows every wrong that human beings do because he witnessed all of it. And he knows what it is to be tempted to do it because he was tempted in all of it. In fact, you may even be a murderer. And in fact, I'll tell you this. You are a murderer, friend. Did you know that? In the eyes of God, you are a murderer. I'm not speaking hyperbolically. I'm one too. Jesus made it clear what God considers murder. Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart, you are guilty of the sin of murder. He said, if you call your brother idiot, you're in danger of hell. I've called people idiot. Haven't you? I've been angry. Haven't you? You may say, well, I had reason to be angry. Maybe you did. But you need to know something. No matter who that person was or is, no matter what they did to you or someone you love, they have a redeemer. And his name is Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That you have a redeemer too. Because I haven't just called people idiot. I've been an idiot. I've made the mistake. I've done the wrong thing. I've sinned. But the avenger of blood gave his blood for me. My kinsman redeemer. Redeemed me. My resting place is in the Lord because Jesus Christ is a place of refuge for every person in every time until the time comes when you and I can dwell with him forever in the city of peace. Lord, we lift our hearts to you and we lift our sins to you. Sometimes we get into situations. We shouldn't have gone into we may find ourselves in a moment of panic we may find ourselves in a place of bondage we may remember something even from long ago that we can't forget and we fear you can't forgive maybe there are those who can't or won't forgive us maybe there are those that we haven't yet forgiven Whatever our circumstance, Lord, we come to you. In fact, I'm going to pause this prayer and say, if you're in a place right now, wherever you are, where you can kneel down and come to your knees, if that's physically possible for you, do that. We talked about going up to the Lord, but when we go up to God, we bow down before him. And if it's not physically possible for you to do this because of where you're at or because of physical condition, find some stance or posture that reflects in your body the sense of your heart to give yourself to God right now. Lord, we confess that we are not righteous people, but we desire your righteousness. Lord, we confess that we have made mistakes. We ask for the cleansing flow of your blood and the sanctifying flow of your Spirit to fill us now with the reality of the forgiveness that we are assured in you. If we are holding on to a hurt or an anger against someone else, Lord, help us to release it right now. Enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to forgive. Supernaturally flow the powerful love and forgiveness of your heart and your throne to us so that we could release them and we too could be released. We were told in these scriptures, Lord, that the people who came to the place of refuge remained there until the death of the high priest. It dawns on me now that you are a high priest who died for us to release the will of the Father into our lives. In other words, that we can go back home because you died for us. We can be free because you live again. We can live forever in you. Lord, receive us into your hands and teach us to live in your ways that we would show grace and mercy to others even as we pursue justice in you and call, Lord, for justice in our land and peace in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.